Welcome to the No Risk Sports Performance Podcast, where we discuss all things sports performance, from training to nutrition and recovery to individual and team victories on and off the field. I'm your host, Judah Boulay, owner of No Risk Sports Performance in Lincoln, Rhode Island. I'm ready to roll, so let's do this. Hello, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Norris Sports Performance Podcast. We have Tim Vagan from Highline University in Seattle, um, all the way across the country. Um, Tim is the program manager for the for a personal training degree program out there. Um, he has a wealth of knowledge and experience in the strength and conditioning field, especially speed development. At some point in his career, he worked with the Atlanta Falcons as their speed performance coach. When Deion Sanders was there, if anybody remembers Deion Sanders, he was one of the best cornerbacks and one of the fastest ever to play in the NFL. So, um, Tim, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. And um, I know that with your long line of credentials, I did you much disservice there. So please fill in the audience about everything else that you've been involved in and welcome. Well, thanks, Judah. It's great to be on. I really appreciate you having me on. And it's it's always fun to talk shop with people, go on and, and move on. Because I've been in the industry for 40 years. Um, I have pretty much done it, seen it, a little of everything. But the biggest thing I always learn is that I, I don't know enough. I haven't learned anything. And I constantly love to have conversations to bring this on. So just a quick, brief background on me. Uh, my first job out of college was actually in the NFL. I worked for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. People know who they are now because they're wearing Super Bowl rings. Um, back when I was with them, we didn't win a game for like three years. Um, so a little different back in the old John McKay days and um, in the in the 80s. And so I came out of there. Um, I think it's a great thing for your career to have your first job on your resume listed as an NFL strength and conditioning coach. Uh, they hired me. I was an intern. and I tell all my students this all the time, just be the best you can be at anything you do because you never know what's going to happen. So I was a good student. I asked to intern with the Buccaneers. I was a good intern. They hired me, started and launched a career. That's a pretty solid thing to have on your resume when you're looking for other jobs. So I spent some time with the Buccaneers. I spent some time with the Atlanta Falcons. Um, I've worked independently. I've spent some time also working extensively, actually, in rehab scenarios, working with um, post-rehab people in my own fitness and then working in physical therapy clinics. Um, my main thing was starting off with the San Francisco Spine Institute back in the 80s. And again, said earlier in our conversation before we get live, that I'm pretty old, so I've been around for a while. So when I talk about things and I talk about the 70s and the 80s, it's because, yeah, I experienced those. But San Francisco Spine Institute was kind of fun. We learned all about exercise back injuries. And the fun thing about that is I actually got to create an exercise that uh, stabilized the spine and went through. And a lot of people know it as the dead bug. And um, nobody had ever seen it before. And I started doing an exercise with movement that I associated with crawling. And I said, well, a lot of people can't crawl because of their back injuries, but we can land down on their back 
and and lay them down on the table or in bed, and they can move their arms and their legs. And somebody said that looks like a dead bug, and that's exactly how it came up. So um, I think I can officially say I get credited for creating the dead bug exercise. That was in 1987, so it was a while back. But then I hit my own gym after that. I moved to Seattle and um, started a gym, and it was a hospital-based gym, but also working from the outside as well. I picked up a lot of kids, a lot of sports teams because of my background as a speed development coach. Um, I ended up picking up a lot of youth athletes to go through that. So they came into my facility and we worked, but then we also, you pick up a kid, he comes in and works with you, then he goes back to practice and suddenly he's the fastest kid on the team. Um, the coach called you and says, what did you do to this kid? Why is he so fast? Why is he outrunning all my other kids? And then all of a sudden you're working with the team. And then the team's faster than everybody else and you're working with the league. And so it branches and then their brother and sister play on a soccer team or something else. And then it branches out. So I started doing uh, camps and I ran um, speed camps for a number of years. They were called the Go Fast Speed Training Camp. And Go Fast was an acronym stood for game-oriented footwork and speed training. And so it would go fast, and the kids learned the fundamentals and the basics. It wasn't, you know, do the fancy dance and the ladder. It was learn how to make your body move efficiently. So we ran that for a number of years and did that while I was running my gym, had a few employees, um, and then built things in, and then started to realize that I had amassed a fair amount of knowledge over the years and I better start teaching it before I forget it. Um, so I want to share this knowledge. So I started speaking, going around the country, going around the world. I worked with, over the years, I've worked with five different Olympic committees um, from different countries. So um, I try to teach some of the information that I got because the human body is the human body. And when you're doing stuff across multiple sports, it's worked well. If you want to put in some accolades there, my athletes, I've had 17 of my athletes win Olympic medals across seven different sports. So I, I've kind of been there, done it, but I like to share it because that's just some experience that if people haven't gotten there, I can give them an insight to, to what it's like, and then I can pick up some information. So that's kind of me in a nutshell and trying to share that information. I got into full-time teaching and started running and created and running this program. That's, that's awesome. The dead bug. I, I first learned about that. And um, so back in the early days, so like I've been, I got involved with CrossFit back in 2008. And then in 2009, I did the early, I uh, did a CrossFit football cert, John Walborn, who was a former NFL lineman. He was also kind of into CrossFit, but he, he wanted to tailor CrossFit's power athletes. So I did, um, so I did the CrossFit football cert and he had Rafael Ruiz. I don't know if you know who Rafael Ruiz is. He's, a, he's He's got a, I forgot the company name because it's changed, but he did the, he made us do the dead bugs down at the cert and it was my first experience with them. And oh my God, like when you do those correctly, there's nothing better to torture, to torture core. Um, and, you know, when I, I try to do those with some of my athletes and it's amazing how the inability to keep the quad flexed and the straight up and um, to, to, to do them properly. Like kids have these days. Um, I love the exercise though. So 
Um, a couple of things from that. Um, so you've done a lot and you've worked with a various bunch of different age groups. So you've worked with kids, you've worked with high level athletes, and then you've also worked in this post rehab setting with, I'm assuming older, um, individuals, um, as well as probably younger individuals, you've worked with this big range of ages and physical abilities. Um, what's the commonalities that you've seen, no matter what group you've worked with, like just in terms of, I guess, performance and, you know, for some performance is just being able to get out of bed after a surgery, right? What's some of those, what's some of the commonalities you've seen um, in all your years of experience with all these different various groups? I think coming down to it, and just to sort of add to the, the intro, I also have a master's degree in um, geriatric kinesiology. So working with older people is something that I later, as I became one of those geriatrics, um, I decided, you know what, I might as well get in this. My constant thirst for learning that I was in the industry for 35 years and decided to get another master's degree. So it was uh, always trying to learn. But commonality, what I found is the human body is the human body. And basics of movement. I don't care whether you're a kid, whether you're a 75-year-old lady, um, a 30-year-old professional athlete, your body still moves the same. There's all different levels of how you interpret those moves and how easily you're able to. The resiliency of a kid compared to a 75-year-old lady is quite a bit different. But the way they walk, the way they move, the way they squat, the way they bend is all the same. And I think the commonality is if you stick to basic movement patterns with anybody, you're going to succeed. Okay, that's awesome. Um, definitely. I, I, same, same wavelength. Um, you know, I've just like the seven primal movement patterns and then Lee has the seven performance patterns. Um, Lee Taft that is, um, so going with that, you know, I don't know how recently you've worked with youth athletes. Um, so, but in your years of working with youth athletes and, and doing these things for CB development, like what differences did you see when you first started? And then like over the years, what changes have you seen in terms of abilities or inabilities um, when you work with athletes? I think the biggest thing that I probably going on the first question kind of changes that were going on. I, like I said, I'm a, a simpleton. Um, I like simple. I like basic. And when I stress the basics, I get the most results. So movement patterns, what I found was they were easier to implement years ago when I first started working with kids because I mean, kids still played, they still went out in the yard, they climbed trees, they did all that stuff that we did as kids, and they didn't specialize in anything. And then later on, as as we got to working with kids, and even just a couple of years ago, I, I still I still continue to do some consulting work and work with teams. But kids get so specialized in what they're doing and get hung up in all the fancy stuff, the Flash, the, all the things that market and sell in the world of speed development. And they get hung in that that they forget how to move. 
kids used to know how to move and then we would just train them a little bit better and tie them into that that movement and get them better on the field or the court or whatever it happened to be. Now you're getting kids that are so caught up in the flash or so caught up in specialty movements for their particular sport that they forget how to basically move. You ask a kid to do a simple movement and they can't do it anymore. So what, what happens is when you're trying to teach them, you have to get that buy-in that you have to go back to basic movement. And a lot of times the buy-in, of course, comes from the ones who are buying, the, the parents with the check, and, and they're the ones that are paying you, and they, they don't want to see your kid learning how to walk first. What are you doing? You're supposed to be some NFL speed coach. Why are you teaching my kid how to walk? Because he doesn't know how. So we're going to walk. Then we're going to run, then we're going to get into the movement pattern. But right now, your kid doesn't know how to move. You're going to have to, a little bit of trust in here, but wait till you see what happens when they start to learn how to move. And the kids just start to excel. But that's been the biggest challenge is when you work with kids now, they're so sports specialized and, and so much in the flash of movement that they don't know how to move, basically. And that's been the biggest challenge. Okay. Um, how about, so with that, um, one of the other, so with this generation, right? So they're used to seeing tons of stuff on Instagram, kids younger and younger have cell phones and they have social media accounts and they, you know, see stuff on Instagram. Um, and they'll see a lot of flash and, you know, shock and awe on, on Instagram from different coaches of like the drills. Right. Um, what, what thoughts on that? Like, so how, how do you, how do you combat that to show that like simple's better? I think a lot of times I know when I hit my gym, uh, when I was marketing to different parents or teams, and I, I would tell them straight up that I have I, I take care of basics first. I compare stories of like people like Michael Jordan, Steph Curry, even now to bring bring it in there. They don't realize how much they work on the basics before they can be as fancy as they can. And then what I would do is at any given time during the middle of the day, I would, my gym was full of five, six different Olympic athletes that would come in. And I would invite them to come in and see the, see the workouts. And they were frankly kind of bored because they saw basic and simple structured workouts because I'm not going to try to do this whole sport specific thing because you know, if I'm working with an Olympic swimmer or I'm working with, you know, an Olympic field hockey player or something like that, I don't know enough about swimming and field hockey that I'm going to be able to do that. I trained a kid through six U.S. figure skating national championships in a row. And I can't skate. <laughs> I have no idea, but I learned the difference between a, a triple lutz and a, and a toe loop. And suddenly I was the expert because I trained this kid in how the body was supposed to move. And all of a sudden he was injury free and able to work. So going through that, I would invite these people in to see. They wanted to see fancy workouts that I was doing with Olympic gold medalists. And they would find that they were very basic. And then I would have the Olympians talk to them and the kids and say, yeah, basics are everything. And that really helped me sell the basics and, and get away from 
everything that a kid can see on social media and and the internet as far as what things are. You know, in order to do those fancy drills, that's great, but you have to be able to have balance, control, proper core control, proper um, proper mental aspect of what you do. You can't just fly through these things. Correct. You're right, right, right. Definitely. So going with that, going with the skating, um, how does taking a figure skater, right, and teaching them proper run mechanics, how does that translate into making them better at figure skating? Yeah, what it does, it teaches them a little bit more control from their body. This kid um, that I started working with um, has had, because of poor training, has had two levels of pars fractures in his lower spine. For those of you listening that don't know what the pars is, it's a joint in the lower spine where the two vertebrae meet. And it usually comes from lack of core control and hyperextension. In figure skating, there's a lot of hyperextension, same thing in gymnastics, et cetera. So this kid had two levels of pars fractures and he was sent to me after physical therapy to work on his core control. So we started working on core control from the basics and then built it into movement. And we started teaching running mechanics because a skater pushes out to the side when they skate. They don't work straight in and linear. So for him to learn how to control everything linear made it a lot easier for his lateral motion as a skater. And therefore, he learned to control his pelvis. He learned to control his upper body in conjunction with his pelvis and his leg movement. And we tied all that in together. We taught him how to jump with two legs. They jump on one leg, primarily the right leg. They spin off that leg. They jump off of that leg. So part of his fractures in his spine were a complete asymmetrical balance of his body as he was trying to do it. Skaters are very asymmetrical athletes. So in order to get him to run, and balance and move in a straight line was really challenging from the asymmetry. Then when we fixed the asymmetry, all of his lateral motion, his spin, his rotational, all of that came into play really easy. So going with that, so how, how if somebody is a skater, hockey player or a figure skater, right? And, you know, they're, they're listening and they don't want to, go to a strength coach or a speed coach, right? And they want to do it on their own. Um, I'm all about, and I know there's no quick fixes, but like I'm about, once again, simple, right? So what are what are your top three drills for a somebody who spends most of their time on skates um, to fix the imbalances that comes with skating to help them walk or run, which is going to then make them better at skating? It starts off with um, training a little bit more on the non-dominant side. Um, hockey players tend to go both directions a little bit more, where figure skaters, because of the, the nature of the moves, the spins, the jumps that they do, they primarily take off on the one leg, land on the same leg, spin in the same direction. So what we do is spend a lot of time um, working the opposite to bring up the balance. Get rid of the asymmetry first, and then we'll go into some basic speed movement. I'm or speed development. I'm not a big fan of ladders and things that people will call speed ladders. Well, they're footwork ladders, 
But what I would actually do is for an asymmetric athlete, I would have them go through a speed lap and do a variety of simple drills through that to let them realize how asymmetrical they were, both in movement and strength. Once we built that, then we built a little bit of speed, spent a lot of time doing um, resisted motion, linear, lateral, but all directly in line, not really working a whole lot of transverse plane steps. That's what they do all the time. So we, we spent straight on sagittal plane, straight on frontal plane. And then, of course, that's the transverse plane is frontal plus sagittal. So if, if you can't master your sagittal plane exercise, you can't master your frontal plane, you have no right to try to master a, trans, a transverse plane exercise. Cool. Um, so going with that, what, so yes, yeah, so <laughs> I have, I'm trying to formulate the question in my head. Um, but if you had, so, the, the, you know, once again, like going with that, like if you, you have a hockey player or a skater, somebody on ice, right. Um, and you want to fix that imbalance, right. So seems like you want to work on balance on both sides and coordination on both sides and with the weaker side. So something like a single leg deadlift, which like hits all those, would that be a tool in your arsenal to like, as like one of those, like, Hey, when you go home, do this. Absolutely. Um, I think doing anything single leg balance, trying to work on both sides of it, you'd get a, almost any skater um, that a right-handed hockey player that's primarily on the right and not backhanding stuff, you know, that left foot forward, right foot back set up for a pass or a shot, um, create a certain level in their body. Have them go home and practice those on a regular basis. Even with my, my NFL guys, I used to have them, if you're going to go into a room, you're walking through your house. I know your house is big. It's probably 11,000 square feet because you just made a couple million dollars, but you go into a different room in the house. What I want you to do is I want you to turn into that room on a right angle. And what I want you to do is I want you to plant the inside edge of your foot and step into that room at a right angle. Do that all day long. When you go into the left, I want you to do the opposite so we can balance you out. So here with a with an athlete that is asymmetrical and going through that, we would teach them to treat both sides at home exactly like they would. And I would give them small things. Brush your teeth. Stand on one foot when you're brushing your teeth. Uh, changing room. Plant that foot and turn at a 90-degree angle. All of a sudden, that becomes habitual. And our whole thing in good movement patterns and good movement that we want to do is create habitual patterns. We don't want them to have to think. When you start getting into reactive tiers of of training that you'll that you get with Lee Cap stuff, that's because you've trained that responsiveness so much that it becomes reactive and natural. And so the more we can do that with them, the better. And that's that's what we would I would tell them to do. Do as much as you can on that opposite opposite thing. I teach the kids for better balance and coordination, asymmetrical stuff. I would tell them everything you do with your right hand when you're home, you're eating, you're writing, you're doing it. I want you to try to do it with your left hand. Teach yourself to be ambidextrous, and they would create 
not only physically the right way to do that, but it would start getting some neuroplasticity going on in their head to start training how things work on both sides. If we could teach them to be ambidextrous, then it balances out a lot of those case management. Definitely. Um, yeah, it's funny because like my son's uh, right-footed dominant and he had a match yesterday, a soccer game yesterday and he had a clear shot on goal, but instead he shifted his body to pass with his right instead of going for the goal with his left. And like middle of the game, I called him up and like I screamed on the field at him because I called him out because I'm constantly on him. <laughs> but like because it's more about the movement because it's no, you need to, to work on developing the left and you can't always go to your strong side if you want to be a balanced athlete. And if you know, for me, it was like the sports performance coach. I don't care if he scored or not. I would have cared if he at least kicked it with his left leg, no matter what, because it shows that you're a balanced athlete and it. You know, and it's just shows that like you, you that he's not right. So that's a flaw and something that like, you know, movement wise, regardless of sport, like he needs to work on. Right. And I try to, you know, um, I work with all my athletes, the non-dominant side, because it's funny, like a lot of people, if they're right handed, if you have them do a just a med med ball um, shot put throw with their weak side like it's not a push it's like a big swing and like they don't have the the control or the the movement control to actually do a push and so that's it's just it's just you know the importance of balance right especially now like you know baseball players kids are playing baseball and specializing and if they're right-handed it's like right side dominant and like the left side is so far weaker and that just leads to injuries down the road um, so well, I actually, just to, to further that, I used to uh, use that as, as marketing. Uh, one of my favorite stories working with a kid when you bring up soccer, it made me think about this, is I had, uh, she was probably 14, 15 years old, pretty fairly high level for that age. Um, and I always preface that. I don't say she's an elite level soccer player because she was, she was 15. Um, but she had been working speed training with me for a long time and she learned movement patterns and she knew what proper foot placement was. She learned what proper balance, center, gravity control, all of that. And I said, okay, you know this now. You know this stuff so well you could teach it. We've got a tournament this weekend. What I want you to do is you're a striker. I want you to go up and I want you to take your defender, take him to their right and try to go by them and see what happens. Next time you get the ball, take them to their left. See what happens. I want you to recognize what happened. She took them to the right. She got stuck. Took them to the left. She blew by, scored a goal. Next time came by and said, I'm going to the right. Took her to the right, got stuck again. Went to the left, got another shot off. Finally, she turned to the defender and said, you know, when you go back to your left side, you plant your left heel going backwards. That's not a good thing. No wonder you can't stop. <laughs> so she knew exactly what was going on. She said, on the right side, you stay on the ball of your feet and, and you move. But when you go to your left, you drop your left heel and it puts you in a bad position and you have to regain your balance and you lose me. So next time she got the ball and she smiled at her and said, I'm going to your left again. <laughs> and the girl, 
totally in her head, didn't know what to do, but could not control her because it was not an innate movement. So when I tell kids that, I tell parents that, coaches that, I said, I can teach you to recognize these things, not only to improve your movement, but to exploit the movement of your opponents who don't have training. Right, right, right. Um, interesting. So how, how would you handle... So one and and my, my we're we're feeling this right now too is that you know as a, as a parent I'm seeing the other side and the pressure that's put on parents to like have their kids if they're any bit decent at a sport to specialize and sign up with these elite level clubs um, and so I have parents like looking at it and they realize that their kid naturally might be just better than everybody in the regular rec league. And so their kids bored with the level of competition in the rec league, but then they're being forced to specialize at a heart at, you know, at the, at, a, at, at the next level at a much earlier age, maybe than you know, they would want to, what would your advice be to parents um, in, or, you know, when they're faced with something like that? That was really tough because the way youth athletics has moved on now, um, you know, it's there's a social stigma when you only play rec soccer. When you're going to school, oh, you're on the recreational team. You're not on the, the traveling club that, that plays all over the country and you're not on this. There is a lot of pressure there. Um, but I'm a huge advocate of being a multi-sport athlete as a kid. I think it's, it's highly important that I use examples of, of most of the professional athletes that I've, that I've worked with over the years that I talk to the parents and say, look, these were all multi-sport people. Now, in their defense, they said, yeah, well, you worked with these people, you know, the 70s, 80s, 90s, everybody played multiple sports, but nobody does that now. So how do you do that? And it's, I think that's one of the biggest challenges because they, they start getting so specialized that you don't, you don't know how to do it. I had an 11-year-old kid come to me and I said, so what sport do you play? And he said, I'm a left outside midfielder in soccer. And I said, but you're 11. Yeah, I'm a left out. But I said, did you ever play like right wing? Or did you ever play defender? How are you a goalkeeper? Oh, I, I'm not a goalie. Have you ever tried it? Well, no, I'm not a goalie. So I don't do it. I said, you might be the best goalkeeper in the world. And you don't know it because you haven't tried it. I said, I know you're a great soccer player. Have you ever tried basketball? Have you ever tried playing baseball? Uh, you know, you might be you might be an Olympic athlete in in another sport, and you don't know it because you're stuck in it. And I kind of take that approach. It sounds kind of silly, and it's, it's hard to it's hard to press the parents on that. But I don't know how it is back in Rhode Island, but here um, I actually coached a high level U16 girls soccer team, and we did well enough to make it all the way to the national finals. We had a, a really solid team. Well, the national finals, we selected our team in March. We played all the way through the summer in tournaments. So we played our league in the fall. Then we played 
winter tournaments a little bit. And it carried on that the national championships were in June of the following year. So it was basically about 15 months. So in March, we had tryouts. And there were kids that didn't make it through tryouts because new kids came in and beat them out that were still playing on the team that was going to play for the national championship. Because it was a 15-month season. And these kids never got a chance to take a break, take a rest, um, develop their bodies in other ways by playing other sports. And it just became so specialized. It's, it, I think it's one of the biggest problems in, in youth sports today, as we all know, anybody that youth works with youth, you come in and say, oh, what do you like to do? I'm a soccer player. I'm a, I'm a shortstop in baseball. And, and they're so specialized down to the position that I've had young kids, baseball players come in and tell me what their pitch counts are. And I think it's, it's crazy. And it's, it's, I don't really have a definitive answer for that because it's, it's hard to tell. It's, you know, I make suggestions and I talk about, you know, how specialized you can get but how open you can make things happen by, by breaking it up a little bit and taking breaks and doing other sports. Right. Right. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's challenge. And, and, that, and that's the pressure, like where I'm feeling as a parent, you know, and I'm, I'm in the field, you know, so I can only imagine like, and my, my knowledge is I agree with you entirely, you know, like I want my son to play or my kids to play more than one sport. Um, because it's good for their mental well-being as well as their physical well-being and you know the, and they also like training and I don't want them to burn out and you know fall fall out of love with the sports that they love right now you know like they're so innocent and I love that innocence and you know I, I hate to see the love of a sport go away from burnout um, so it's and I can imagine what other parents feel like, you know, like without the knowledge base that I have, because if I'm feeling it with the knowledge base that I have. Um, all right. So moving forward, I don't know how much more time you have. I know you're really busy with the program, but if I, you, blocked out, I blocked out a lot of time for you. Right. I'll take whatever. Cool. All right. I have a, I have a, a couple more questions. So then, um, <clears throat> so just because, you know, I, I think it's interesting because you've worked with some really high level athletes. Um, so, when you you're at you know your first whether it was the Buccaneers or the Atlanta Falcons you had um you had because with the Falcons you had Deion Sanders um on the team who was like we said one of the one of the premier um cornerbacks of all time um one of the premier athletes of all time and but then you also had those who were not as talented as he was all right you're just blessed with the genetic ability that he had so how do you tackle a situation amongst high level performers all together right where there's i'm and there's definitely attitude right their own personal egos um and i guess you can say that's the same thing because the atmosphere there can just be translated down to the college level with you know athletes or even to a, a club team with their athletes where there's always going to be somebody slightly more talented or gifted than you. Um, how do you balance the, the, the egos or the psychological with the physical training? 
So that way the elite athlete, and maybe it's a little bit different at the professional level because that's their job and their jobs to train, right? So at the college athlete, the high school athlete, the club athlete, how do you balance that ego with the physical saying, yes, you might be good now, but you could still get better by training? I think um, the important thing is good solid communication with the athlete. I think under letting the athlete understand, not really telling them, I'm all about empowering and giving people the knowledge to kind of let them figure out things themselves. I never tell an athlete what to do. I always work with them on something to do. So um, part of that is sitting down and having that conversation about, you know, what do you think your weaker areas are? I'm not going to, yeah, I can test you and I can tell you what your areas, what your weak areas are, but there are your athletes that, that have a slow 40 and they think it's one of their best, their speed is their best um, attribute. But to sit down and empower the higher level ones, because usually the ones that are gifted, like the Dion's or the kid on the, on the club team that's just better, they do have an understanding of, of what they need to work on. And usually I have them bring that up more so than me. What do you, where do you think you could get stronger? Where do you, your skills are really good. The way I like to give cues and coaching, and it's the same thing with, with anything, with raising kids. Um, I call it kind of the sandwich approach. You, you hit them up with something really good. You know, you do this really, really well. And then you fill in the meat on the sandwich. Uh, this is what we really need to work on. And then you finish it up with another slice of bread, which is another nice piece of, you know, this is what you do really well. This is what we need to work on. And then the final slice of bread is if you work on that stuff, look at how good that's going to be. Now, a college athlete, especially in a, in a major sport, um, you can always motivate them with dollar signs. You know, if you work on this, um, they're going to add another zero to your paycheck. Um, if you work on this, professional athlete, you work on this, you're going to be all pro. You're going to be named to the all-star team. You're going to be something if you're working on this. What areas do you think? And usually the higher level the athlete that I find the um, the more they have a better understanding of what they need to work on. The, the medium level athlete who is pretty good just thinks they're good at everything. Take a look at you're dealing with people in business, you're dealing with people in trainer. The mid-level trainers are the ones that think they know it all. The highest level trainers are the ones that say, I don't know anything and I need to learn more. And yes, I do this really well, but this is what I really need to work on. That's why they're at the top level. How about with the club team though? Cause I'm sure there's all various levels of, of girls on that team. Um, how do you motivate the girls who think they're really good, but they're not as good as they think. Don't let them talk to their parents. <laughs> <laughs> How's that? Um, don't let them talk to their parents. Their parents, are, their parents are already counting the, Counting the scholarship offers. The the parents are already talking about, you know, my 11-year-old kid that's going to be a professional athlete. 
Um, you know, I had a parent call me about a baseball player and said, well, he's projected to be a high level major league draft choice. And I said, okay, great. I can work with him. I, you know, do a lot with shoulders, pretty healthy. Yes, he's healthy. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's see what we can do to get him in. What's your timing look like? Well, he plays on two different teams. He's got a hitting coach. He's got an infielder coach. And I said, well, what about leagues? Can I, can I go out and watch some of his leagues and play like maybe in the New England league or something like that? And, um, she said, no. I said, all right. Well, can you bring him in during the day then? Cause he's usually practicing in the afternoon, evening. Well, he's got school. Oh, <laughs> uh, wait a minute. How old's your son? Oh, he's nine. He's going to be the next Derek Jeter is what his coaches are telling me. So I want to give him everything I can. Now, this is a kid that's told he's the next Derek Jeter. He's going to be a high-level draft in, in Major League Baseball draft where his parents have a better chance of winning the lottery three times than this kid getting drafted. <laughs> and this kid is told that in the old adage that something that comes out of his body doesn't stink. And these are the toughest kids to work with because they are told they are the best of the best. And if you mention that they may have a flaw, um, the parents are the ones that go nuts because you said their kid wasn't perfect. That to me has always been the hardest thing. So when you deal with a kid like that, what I use my experience in, in recognizing movement skills and I will have them do a drill that I know they will not be able to do. Mm -hmm. It's a kind of a harsh way of doing it, but I'll expose them. From a business side, they always talk about your elevator statement. My elevator statement always was I find physical weaknesses in people and I explode. And I walk off the elevator. People want to know, what do you do? Well, I find physical weaknesses in people and I exploit. That's what I do as a movement coach, as a strength coach. and so these kids that, you know, think they're perfect, or the parents, I should say, that think they're perfect, um, you expose them. You find a weakness in their movement and have them do it. And they get frustrated. And you say, you know what? I can teach you how to do that movement. This is how you need to do that. And it humbles them, brings them down, and then all of a sudden they start doing that movement. And now it's, it's magic. And you've created that bond with them because you found somebody that was perfect and you found a slight flaw, but you fixed that flaw. Now you've got that kid for life. I've got so many kids that were 10, 11, 12 years old. They're 30 years old now and I'm still in contact with them. Wow. Because it made a difference in their life. Right. That's awesome. Um, so that's, that's, uh, I, I love that statement about your elevator, your elevator pitch. That's, uh, I think that's something that like every strength coach needs to like put on. Well, hopefully not everyone, but I might use that. Um, <laughs> Cause that's, that's, that's fantastic. Cause that's exactly what, you know, like, you know, that's basically like how, like we, we fix like strength coaches, speed of coaches, like we fix movement. Right. And right. like the kids who get their movement fixed are always going to be better off than the kids who don't get their movement fixed. And, um, and, you know, from a coaching standpoint, when I'm looking, you know, I coach rugby and when I'm looking at the field, I look at body position and, mm -hmm. you know, body position of like the opposing team. 
And that's how I know how to coach better coach my individual players when I have a moment to talk to them about where to attack on the playing field or, you know, and, and, you know, going into a tackle or whatnot, you know, and I do that in practice, you know, and so, um, but that's, it's basically, you know, what, what coaching is, um, I think smart coaching. Um, all right. So we'll, uh, I have, before I hit the, my final questions that I ask every guest, um, there, you know, so you've had great experiences, you know, some, a lot of like life, real cool experiences, some experiences that none of us will ever, ever be in the um, situation experience in terms of, you know, the, the athletes that you've worked with, the, the teams that you've worked with, um, and all those years of working with NFL teams or athletes, um, are there any, you know, what are some of your, what's like a most memorable experience you've had? And then what's one of, I guess, one of the most humorous um, anecdotal experiences that you've had working with um, these teams? All right. So tap into uh, first one was what? One of the but most memorable, one of the ones that like stands out in your memory the most from working with all these high level athletes and teams was like, if you had to pick, and I'm sure it's probably difficult, but if you had to pick the most memorable, what would be the most memorable? And then what's the most humorous or anecdotal? Um, I think um, from, from a memorable, uh, what I remember the most and a memorable event was the first time I had an athlete in an individual sport break a world record. I mean, that was, I didn't look at it as, wow, they won a competition. Wow, they said world record. Okay, good. I looked at it and I talked to her and this was a swimmer and she got out of the pool and I gave her a hug and said, congratulations. Nice work. And she was like, I broke the world record. I said, no, you didn't break the world record. You are now the fastest person in the history of the human being that has ever done your distance in that time. And that's the way I looked at it. Yeah, world record, those are words. I said, you are the fastest human being ever in the history of humans that have done this. I mean, granted, they didn't time Tarzan when he was getting chased by an alligator or something, but, <laughs> but in a competition, you've done this faster than anyone else in the history of the world. And I kept mentioning that. And it blew her away when she thought about that. World record is great. That means, that, oh, yeah, I went the fastest time. No, fastest time ever. How many thousands, if not millions of people have swam this distance for time? And nobody has ever done this at this level. You're in a very, very unique category of people. And that was that was a pretty amazing moment. I can I can remember that. I mean, aside from my get on the on the bragging thing, aside from my my daughter winning a world championship, it was um, that was probably an amazing an amazing moment. And so that was probably the most memorable. That first world record I've had several um, since then, but they never meant the same. Because that was the first one, kind of like your first love. <laughs> always, you never forget your first love, no matter who it was. You always remember. Now, unfortunately, 
you hook up with them on Facebook and you find out, oh my God, I escaped this one. Um, but before we, before we get onto the, the humorous one, I just to follow yeah. up on that. So like, how is it after for that athlete? They win the world record, right? They're, are they, they're the fastest human in that distance at that, you know, in, in, in humanity. Um, what's next for them? Right. So like, how do you, how does, how did, how do they, you know, is there like a big low afterwards? Because like they hit this high and then like, is there a low, like, where do I go from here? Or how, how do you coach somebody through that? Yeah, I think, I think the low there's, there's a a real actually high level of depression and and mental issues um, from world champions, world record holders, et cetera, because now you have done something that nobody else has done before. Um, what's your goal? Right. You've just you've just beaten the ultimate goal. You've you've gone faster than anybody else in the history of the world. Now what do you do? Well, you go down to the tattoo shop and you put a big target on your back. <laughs> because that's all you become now is no matter what you're doing, whether it's a local race away from the Olympic pool, or whether it is something really just in practice and somebody holds their own against you. Well, you feel defeated. They feel elated. So you are now, you have a target on you that expectations have always been high for you because you're an elite level athlete. Now that you're a world record holder, the, the expectations are even higher and will be there for the rest of your life. You could be retired for 20 years and go to a master swim event and they're going to say, this is world record holder. So-and-so that's how you become known and you lose a little bit of your personal identity. Hmm. You have to deal with the mental aspects of it. Interesting. Um, All right. And then going back with the humorous or anecdotal story from your time working with professional athletes, um, world record holders and teams, do you have a a favorite anecdotal humorous moment? Yes, actually. um, And it really doesn't have to do with specific athletes, but it has to do with training. I I went and got invited over to um, spend some time in Istanbul uh, to train. the in different things at the Turkish Olympic Center, and I was I was shocked that they didn't know what a Turkish getup was. <laughs> <laughs> I asked them if they if they if as we go through this, are we going to do Turkish getup? And they they it's like, um, Coach, what what is Turkish getup? <laughs> My graphic kettlebell, I showed them a Turkish getup, and they were just shocked. And they said, Oh, we'll start calling these American getups. <laughs> so uh, that was, from a humorous side, that was great. And I love telling that story because here I was spending time with elite level athletes in, in Turkey, and they didn't know what a Turkish getup was. They'd never heard of it. Uh, had they seen the movement before, or like they just didn't know by that name? <laughs> They never knew it was called a Turkish get. Okay, cool. And they're right. like, we don't do these in Turkey. We, right? This is okay. I understand this lift. And there were some people that were into kettlebells that would do that movement. But 
the regular athletes, um, I work with the team handball, soccer, swimming. Um, they never, they would never do a supplementary exercise like that. So we started building that up and, um, and it made a difference. That's awesome. All right. And then, um, so one more, just before we get, I have my, my favorite, but, um, you were sharing a story and I think everybody would find some amusement, um, with it, but there was a little incident, not an incident, but a moment with the Atlanta Falcons that was also from a long-term, um, career development or franchise development, um, blunder that was made. Um, please share that one that, that we were talking about earlier. Uh, absolutely. Well, the um, it happens in all sports. People make trades. They go through things. Well, we had um, a third-string quarterback. Chris Chandler was our quarterback at the time, and we had a third-string quarterback that nobody really cared for because um, he wasn't the nicest guy. He was arrogant. Thought everything about him, just like these, these kids that we talk about that were the perfect kids. This guy came in and just thought he was, you know, got to get the football as he went through. And um, nobody liked him, and he barely got the playing time. I think he probably got three or four reps during the season and was sitting on the bench trash-talking everybody the whole time. So they decided to get rid of him. And then um, when the uh, Green Bay Packers picked up Brett Favre after we cut him, um, I think we need to stop the story there because he turned out okay. Yeah, he did. <laughs> One of the all-time greats. I know not personality-wise, but from a from a playing standpoint. Uh, from a football standpoint, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, from a personality standpoint, and this probably goes all over the internet, I probably get in trouble for it, but look what they replaced him with personality-wise. Um, <laughs> maybe not the best. Right. Aaron, um, maybe not the most popular guy, but you've got to respect his talent. Um, right. Absolutely. And, and I think that's key is respecting that talent of what it is, whether they're, you know, perfect personalities, nicest people to get along with. That was the difference with somebody like Dion. He got stepped into the huddle, was really hard on everybody because he wanted them to be better. And he made everybody about 10 to 15 percent better every time he stepped on the field. There's uh, something to be said about that. Um, yeah. So, all right. So the questions I ask every guest, um, do you have a favorite quote that you um, always resort to, whether it's like just for your own personal mantra or that you always like just use the same quote with your athletes um, that, that that always just resonates with you? Absolutely. And almost everybody that knows me hears this from me all the time. It's, you don't know what you don't know. <laughs> and, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. I consult the different gyms in the area on training and go through, and I've talked to gym owners, and they think their trainers are the best trainers in the world. And I said, guess what? You don't know what you don't know. Let me expose you to some high-level training and let you see what actual really good training is. Or somebody, you know, you could do it in the business world when you're working on that. People think, yeah, we're running really, we've got good systems, we've got well, you don't know what you don't know. And then all of a sudden you see really good systems that are better than yours. And it ties into the constant thirst for learning. Perfect. Not so that's, my, that's my favorite quote. 
Um, from a personal side, I have a quote that says, nobody can hurt you without your permission. Um, but that is all about how you personally react and respond to things from a, from a personal side and your emotional side. That's my other favorite one. But from a training side of things, you don't know what you don't know. is probably the biggest one that I use all the time. And that is a great segue into my next question, which I ask everybody, because I'm a big firm believer in reading. I love books. And I think reading gives you knowledge and knowledge gives you power. And that goes along with you don't know what you don't know. Um, Do you have a favorite book? Like if you had to recommend one book to somebody, um, then it could be in whatever discipline it is. But if you had to recommend one book, what book would that be? The... Because I as said earlier, I'm a simpleton and I like the basics. I like the classics as well and the seven habits of highly successful people is copyright that make all of my students read because what you'll learn is that based on your own specific behavior and how you do things as far as a habit is concerned, um, when you learn about the seven habits of highly successful people, there was a lot of research that went into that to realize that people who are very successful tend to do the same thing. Excellent. Um, okay, uh, the last uh, last question is, what is what are Tim Vegan's three keys to success? Oh, man. Number one, communication. Now, I don't mean just communication with, with your athletes, with your coaches, with any. Communication is really something that most people don't talk about, that it's communication with yourself as well. It's going back to the, you don't know what you don't know, seven habits, going, all those things that tie into these questions, that honest communication with yourself. It's so important to be successful because you have to realize, we talked about this a little bit, that we're not all perfect. There are areas that we're weak in. And if you can't communicate that with yourself, then you are not going to be successful. And because if you can communicate with yourself, your ability to communicate with other people is going to be that much higher. The, the old, my girlfriend's a flight attendant and they all put your oxygen mask on first before you can help people. Well, there's a reason for that because if you're choked out because you can't reach, you can't save your family. So you have to have that communication within yourself and be honest with yourself and be able to deal with that before you can ever think about dealing with other people. So I think communication is my number one thing. Um, again, we talked about it. You've heard it come out. Basics. Know the basics. And that, I don't care what it is, whether it's training, whether it's speed development, whether it's weightlifting, whether it's business. If you can't do things from the basics the way they're meant to be done, you're not going to be able to do anything. So basics are huge. So we go from communication with yourself and others to basics with yourself and others and mastering those to now being able to understand people. Maybe that goes in through the two things, but um, as we know, we're coaches and 
if you're a really good coach, you are essentially a chameleon. You're going to change. Um, you're going to get one kid that you know that you're working with that you're going to have to be a little tougher on, but you know that the other kid that's behind him, if you get tough on him, he's going to fold up and crawl into the corner and maybe never come back. So you've got to be a little bit more supportive with him. If you're too supportive with the one kid, then you're just, you know, stroking his ego and you have to be tough on him. Um, not supportive enough with another kid, then you're, you're demoralizing him and, and you're not bringing that up. So I think the ability to adapt is probably the words I'm looking for. So good communication, being able to do basics. And within all of those, still be able to adapt and still be able to adapt task at hand, whether it is a podcast, whether it's training, whether it's a relationship, you have to be adaptable and understand within that communication to yourself, going back and tying it all through, that being adaptable is okay. You can teach something three or four different ways because there's three or four different people who are going to understand it a little bit different. So those are three key, I think, components to, as I think about it, when, when you sent me that email and said, okay, think about that question. I really think that those three components have really helped me a lot. Cool. No, those are awesome. That's, uh, you know, one the funny thing is from every podcast, you know, I look at these as like trying to get information out to people from different perspectives, but I learned so much and um, from each of these and like, you know, everybody, everybody interview, I, I, it just get, makes me just think so much more about me as a coach and me as a person and, and where I can improve and, and what I'm maybe doing right, you know, because I know there's things I could be doing better, you know, and I think there's some things that I'm doing pretty good. So um, last question, um, you know, we've talked about a lot. We, you know, we've shared a lot. Um, was there something that you had hoped I would have asked you that I didn't ask you and if you were in my seat? Actually, it's something that you didn't ask me that I think is very important. Um, and it's important that you didn't ask me. That's the thing. It's not that I wish you had asked me, but you didn't. And I'm really proud of you for not doing that. And that was really cool. Is One of the things that I have been asked over the years and you probably get it as well as a coach, is people want to know, well, what was your background in sports? What did you do? Did you play professionally? Did you, I mean, I was a 21-year-old kid working in the NFL. And did I, did I have time to pursue an athletic career? I actually did, but um, I think that's it's such an important question because a lot of times, and it goes a lot with the flash of speed training. The, typically, the ones who are teaching the flash training are the ones that had exceptional careers. And, and they, they market on their notoriety of their careers and not their knowledge. You ask me nothing but questions about my knowledge, my background, my coaching, my philosophies, and all that. I was a three-time champion, world champion athlete. Wow. But... You didn't ask that, and that's great. You didn't ask, oh, what's your athletic background that makes you a good coach? Now, I'm a good coach because I'm a good coach. Right. I'm not a good coach because I was a good athlete. 
my sport was rowing. Um, my daughter took it up. When you talk about kids specializing, I know we're trying to cut this out, but she was a swimmer in high school, highly recruited um, swimmer, did very, very well, multiple state championships as a swimmer. And she graduated high school and said, I don't want to swim anymore. I'm, I'm tired of swimming. She switched over to, um, to rowing, which was my sport and also her mom's sport, picked it up. And um, two years later, won her first world championship, wow. two years in, into a sport. I mean, so she started off as a pretty good athlete. Right. Great but solid aerobic base. <laughs> and I had the athlete mindset and had everything else, but jumped right into it and was into it for two years and then ended up um, becoming a world champion and, and a three-time NCAA champion. And, um, but it's, it's kind of how we talk about burnout and what we go through, but the fact that I would get the same things when we'd be at a rowing competition, I would show up because I was a rowing coach for a number of years, but I would show up at her competitions as a dad and going on to that same thing that we talked about as with my first world record holder. Um, when I stepped there, I was no longer, you know, Emma's dad. I was him, the world champion. And I'm like, no, I'm here to support my daughter. I'm not here to talk about my glory day. I'm here to talk about, you know, I want to see my daughter race and I want to see her win. And I think that's really cool. But you, you lose that. And that was that, you know, I'm glad you didn't ask what was your background. I've been on podcasts. I've been on interviews. Well, what was your athletic background? I'm like, why does that matter? Yeah, I, I, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't even answer it if they would ask. I would say, I don't think that really matters, so I'm going to choose not to answer that. That's. Uh, I don't know. I, I always sometimes because good coaches not necessarily are the ones who've done it best. No, because everything came easy to them, so it's the ones who might not have been the top level performers who make the best coaches because. They understand the process a little bit more than the elite because the elite things might have just come easier to them, um, and maybe because I was a I was a crappy athlete. <laughs> maybe maybe that's why people's former athletic abilities don't matter. You know, um, you know. So I, I don't know whatever reason I you know I, I value everything that you um, brought to the table today, um, all the wisdom you have for our guests, all the wisdom I I'm leaving here with. Um, and thank you, um, to the audience. Um, this was, uh, Tim Vigan. Oh, Tim, just let people know where they can find you, um, get more information about you or what, what's your, do you have a social media? Do you have a website? Um, you know, I used to have all that when I had my business, but, um, basically, you know, I keep it pretty simple. If they want to contact me, they can contact me at tvagan at Highline dot edu that's h-i-g-h-l-i-n-e dot edu and if you have any questions you have anything um yeah there's linkedin there's a couple of different things i'm on facebook but most of that the facebook stuff's all personal but if you have questions about training i'm happy to talk to anybody out there just contact me um through my highline email that's tvagan v-a-g-e-n at highline.edu. And I'm glad to answer any questions you have. Awesome. All right, Tim, um, that was a great conversation, folks. Um, that's it for today, and we'll see you next week.
Thank you for listening. Thanks for listening to the Norris Sports Performance Podcast. Be sure to hit the like and subscribe button, as well as checking out the show notes for more information on our guests. You can find us on Instagram at Norris Sports Performance. Until next time, I'm your host, Judah Boulay, reminding you to train smart and recover smarter.